1,016. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles, 1,016. We're going to read this entire chapter, verses 1 through 14. And as we read, remember that we're reading God's word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders." Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's God's word. You may be seated. We've taken this entire fall and been studying this book of 1 Peter, and we finally come to the end. Some of you thought we would never finish it, uh, and here we are. And uh, we haven't talked a lot about Peter and his story. So you've been hearing these sermons. All I've really said along the way is that Peter was one of Jesus' closest apostles. Um, but, but today we come to a passage of Scripture that I think is very much informed by Peter's story. Uh, Peter here, I, I think, is sharing specifically some things from the heart. If you, were to, if you were to ask Peter, what have you learned from your life experience and how could it help us? I, I think a lot of what he'd tell you is what's in this chapter. Now, some of you are very familiar with Peter. You've read the Gospels. You've read the Bible. You know his story. But many of you don't know as well. You're, you're newer to church, newer to the Bible, trying to understand some of this. And so let me just fill all of us in on, on, on Peter's story. Peter was one of the 12 disciples, but not just one of the 12 disciples. He was part of the inner three. So Jesus had a lot of people that followed him, right? There were multitudes that would hear him speak and watch him do miracles. Then there was about 70 people that he would commission out to do mission projects uh, throughout his ministry. Then there were the 12, the disciples that he had specifically chosen and appointed to follow him. And then within that was the three, Peter, James, and John. And they got sort of special inside access to Jesus. At some of Jesus' most important and most intimate and most private moments, they were there. They were there when Jesus rose, raised a little girl from the dead. He invited them in to see how he handled the situation. 
they were there when Jesus was transfigured on a mountain and, and all of his glory was revealed and they were there to see that. They were there when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were there. And some of you go, well, that's not fair. Why do they get to be part of it? And not around? I, I don't know. Life's not fair, right? Fair ended in the Garden of Eden. So, so I don't know why, but, but they was part of this core. So that's one thing you need to know is he had close proximity to Jesus. Another thing you need to know is that Peter was the boldest of all the disciples. He was bold, and he had opinions, and he shared them. And I think one of the things the Lord loved about Peter was his honesty. What you saw was what you got, and it was what you heard. And, and that honesty came out in good ways and in bad ways. And, and those of us know, right, you, you know that oftentimes it's your greatest strengths that are also your greatest weaknesses, right? So if you're a confident, bold leader, you're prone to pride and arrogance. If you're soft-spoken and quiet, you're prone to self-pity, right? And, and however that is, and I know for me, one of, my, one of the ways God's gifted me is with an ability to communicate clearly, and that's often a blessing, and it's often a curse when it is to zing somebody, right? And so, so that's how it was with Peter. He was bold, and that boldness expressed himself in some good and some not-so-good ways. Some of the good ways it, it expressed itself uh, was G- Jesus one time was walking on the water. These, these disciples were in a boat and they weren't with Jesus and all of a sudden they see a person walking on the water and Peter has the boldness to tell Jesus, Jesus, if it's you, have me come out there with you. Right, which that's bold, right? Like you, you see, you're not sure if it's a ghost or if it's a person or what and your thought is I'm gonna go out there with him. I mean, that is bold. And Peter takes a step out of the boat and walks on the water toward Jesus. Now, eventually, he, he looks away, and he gets worried about the wind, and he falls. And, and people are often quick to critique Peter for that. Well, he didn't keep his eyes focused on Jesus. He was on the water. <laughs> I mean, like, that's pretty cool. Like, no one else did that. And so that was a bold act of faith by Peter. Other boldness that happened uh, with Peter, I mentioned the transfiguration when Jesus goes up with this inner three up onto a mountain, and and they are allowed to see. It's like the veil is lifted, and they see the full glory of Jesus that he had before he came and that he has now again. And it's amazing. And Elijah is there, and Moses is there. And, and Peter's so bold, he's like, this is unbelievable. Let's just stay here forever. How about if I build some tents, some tabernacles, and we can all just live here? And they're like, Peter, Peter, calm down. This is just for a moment. But, but he's bold like that. There's another moment in Mark chapter 8, you can read this, where Jesus is off on a retreat with his disciples. And he's asking them, who do people say that I am? They say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Well, who would be the first person to speak? Of course, it's Peter. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. And, and, and Jesus commends him and says, Peter, only God could reveal that to you. And so he's bold, and that boldness, he's not afraid to speak out. But sometimes that leads him to make some big mistakes. 
And so, just moments after he tells Jesus that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus then says, well, I'm glad you got that, but let me tell you what's going to happen next. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer there, and I'm going to be tortured there, and I'm going to die there. And, and, and Peter, who just moments before had said, Jesus, you're the Son of God, says, Jesus, I need to talk to you for a second. Come here. And he pulls Jesus aside, and it says he rebuked Jesus for Jesus saying that he was going to suffer. Like, Jesus, come on, man. I don't think you understand. And, and, and do you know what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. So, so in one moment you say you're the son of God, and the next moment you're, you're confronting him, and he's calling you Satan. This boldness got him in some trouble. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with all of his disciples, and Jesus uh, wraps around a towel around his waist, and he begins to go around and to wash the feet of his disciples. They're arguing about who's the greatest, and he's down on his knees washing their feet. And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, you may never wash my feet. Okay, well, if you're going to wash my feet, wash my whole body. And, and Jesus again rebukes him and says, Peter, you don't get it. Then there's another moment where Peter really doesn't get it. And his boldness and it be, really turns into a kind of arrogance. Um, it's a time when he was being, a, he, Jesus is telling him, you're going to be attacked by Satan. Let's take a look at this in Luke chapter 22. Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, that was the other name he went by. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, Satan came to me and asked for you. So I want to sift him. Right? You'd think that would make you go, oh, no. Like, that's serious. And here's Peter's response. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Another place Peter had said, Lord, if everyone else walks away from you, I never will. Bold. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And just hours later, while Jesus is on trial, Peter finds himself warming his hands by a fire and a small servant girl says, don't you know Jesus? And he says, I never knew him. And the rooster crows. And Peter remembers these words. And he is grieved by his arrogance and his sin and his denial of Jesus. You'd think that would be a pretty life-defining moment, wouldn't it? And so Jesus dies and Peter is surely left uncertain about what to do and what to make of this. And he's just given three years to following Jesus. And, and he, he, he's, he's going, he told me about the suffering, but I never wanted to believe that. And now it's happened, and now he's dead, and I don't know what to do. And so Peter does what Peter had always done growing up. He goes fishing. He's out there fishing. And then the resurrected Lord comes. And he calls Peter over, and Peter recognizes that it's him. And, and Jesus, in his mercy, just as Peter had denied him three times, Jesus gives him three opportunities to express his love. He says, Peter, do you love me? 
He says, yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. And Peter is beautifully restored. And in that, he gets something that he never had before. He becomes a changed man. And, and we know the change that happens, uh, partly because of what we read in the book of Acts and how Peter is this bold, fearless, willing-to-suffer uh, Christian. But we also see it in this book that we've been reading. See, we've been reading this book about the suffering that we're to expect as followers of Christ. Uh, back in chapter 4, it said uh, in verse 12, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And all throughout this whole chunk of Scripture, Peter has been writing to prepare you for suffering. Remember, this is the same guy who rebuked Jesus for saying suffering would come. And now he's saying, you need to be ready for it. Something's changed in him. You know what it is? He always had boldness. But all of that experience with Jesus added to his life humility. And now, Peter is both bold and humble. So that's a rare combination. That's a combination, actually, that only comes and is available to those who will follow Jesus by grace. Because all of us have something that we're living for. All of us have a personal bottom line. All of us have something, whether you're religious or not, we naturally have this sense of, if I accomplish this, if I do this, if I am this person, then I'll know I matter. So for people, it's different things. For some, it's if I make this kind of money, then my parents will finally think I'm a success. Some, it's if I could just lose this weight or look this way. If I could just accomplish this in my industry, then I'd know I'm something. Right? And, and, and Christians do this. Non-Christians do this. Every one of us has something that we're living for. And what happens is when we fail it, we become Humble, but not bold. See, we fail it and we go, I stink, I'm nothing, no one's ever going to appreciate me, all that I've ever lived for is crashing down around my head, and you're humble, but you're not bold. Or, worse, if you accomplish it, then you're bold, but you're not humble. Right? You're the one that was actually able to, to keep your New Year's resolutions. And so you look down your nose at all these slackers. You're eating sugar. You haven't worked out in a week, right? And you don't say this out loud, but you're thinking it in your heart. You're bold. Everyone should be more like me, but you're not humble. See, that's what happens when you live trying to justify yourself, trying to make a name for yourself. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's what happens. The way you experience the grace of Christ is to admit that you're a failure. So, for the follower of Christ, you are inherently to be humble because you got into this not by saying, I achieved it, but by saying, I stink. I'm, I'm a loser. I'm, I'm hopeless and lost. Woe to me, a sinner. So you're humble, but you're also bold because you know that this God who forgives you is also the God who is with you. And you have promises from Jesus, like, I am with you always to the end of the age. And if he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And so you're humble and bold. Peter had the bold. 
And he got through this the humble. Imagine what humility could do for you. That's really the main theme of this passage. Imagine humility. What could this do? This kind of humility would make it when, when you're critiqued, when you're criticized, you neither retaliate and lash back, nor do you sulk into a depression. Because you say, you know what? I really am not all that good, but God loves me anyway. When you lose control, any control freaks here today? The rest of you are liars. Okay? Right? When you lose control and you get worried and you get anxious, and if humility was in your life, you'd be able to say, I'm not in charge anyway. God is. You'd be able to trust them. So humility is an important thing. It's what Peter wants to give us here. And, I, and I'm so blessed. I was telling Molly this week, I was, I'm so excited to be able to teach on humility because really, I'm probably the best person around at humility. <laughs> and I'm really great at it. And I told her that. She's like, are you serious? And I was like, faux shizzle. You know that phrase, Marie? You don't? It's a phrase that pays. You should use it. So that's what this is about. This is about humility. And I, and I, don't, I don't excel at humility. Okay? So this is, this is teaching to me, and I desperately need what Peter is going to tell us here. And Peter is, is going to give us three images in this passage, and I think they all connect to humility, though in some different ways. And so here's the images that we're going to see today. We're going to see the apron, the lion, and the finish line. And all of that's going to tie to humility. So let's look first at the apron. That's what we see in verses 1 through 7, the apron. And we get this from uh, verse 5. L- look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's that phrase, clothe yourselves. It means wrap humility around you like a garment. So I think about the apron, right? You you don't wake up in the morning humble. And so each day is a day of just as you get dressed to put on your clothes, you need to clothe yourself in humility. And so that's the image that I want us to see is the the idea of the apron. For Jesus, it was at his last supper, tying the, the towel around his waist, clothing himself in humility. And Peter tells us that humility is incredibly important. And you see why at the end of verse five. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I think you could hear Peter think, believe me. I've lived that one. You don't want to go there. And so he calls us explicitly to have this heart of a servant, to have the heart of one who's in an apron. And he does it uh, talking to three groups of people in verses 1 through 7. It's really cool how this outline works. In verse 1, he's talking to the elders, saying those of you leading and overseeing the church, here's how humility needs to flesh out in your life. And then in verse 5, he says, likewise, you who are younger, and he talks to them. And then he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. So let's look at what is humility supposed to look like as a people of God in our church. What should this be? He says, verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you, As a fellow elder 
and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, let's just stop there for a moment because you see Peter actually modeling humility in what he's writing. With the kind of access that Peter had, he could very easily say, so I, ex- so I exhort the elders among you as an apostle and the pillar of the church, do this. But he doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? He says, so I exhort you elders as a fellow elder. Not better than you, not above you. I'm a, I'm a fellow elder with you. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now remember, Peter was the one who said, Jesus, you'll never suffer. That's ridiculous. And when Peter's listing his resume, he's modeling humility. Here's an area where I blew it. As someone who blew it, here's what I'm exhorting you to do. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That phrase, among you, is important, right? He's talking here to overseers, to elders, to pastors, the leadership of a church. And uh, we are an elder-led, elder-governed church here at Redemption. And, And the call for us elders is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That phrase, among you, is important. It's not shepherd the flock of God that is below you. As if you're just at the top. You're the CEO, and you call the shots. You're also a sheep. Right? That's what's so interesting about church leadership is, is you also are a sinner. You also are, get, get confused at times. You also need help. You need encouragement. You need love. You need care. You need all the things that a, a sheep needs, and you're giving that to people, but you also need it. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You know any shepherds? It's not real glamorous work, right? Shepherds get dirty and they start to smell like sheep. Right? If some walked in here, you wouldn't want to sit next to them. He's saying, elders, get, get your hands dirty. Get in people's lives. Help, serve, support, encourage them. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion. You're going to get a couple, not this, but this. Here, here, come in. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He's saying there's all these bad reasons that you could want to be involved in church leadership. It could be under compulsion. Well, hey, you got to do this. Uh, I don't really want to. He says, no, 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 do it it eagerly because you want to or willingly. Um, Not for shameful gain, so not to uh, try to make more money, not to try to wield your power or influence or something like that. But, but eagerly, because you want to, not domineering over those in your charge. You ever had a leader remind you that they were the leader? You, you know what that is? That's the, ad, that's the admission that they're not a leader. Because if they were a leader, you would already be following them. But the point at which they say, Don't, do you remember who I am? Don't you know the position I have? That's domineering. And, and, and that is rampant in churches. Some of you have, have, have church experiences where you have been burned badly by that kind of leadership. And that's not godly leadership here, according to Peter. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Leaders, no matter how important or how big, need to have humility. 
love this story that I heard about a, a, a guy. A guy told this. He, he sort of ran a conference center where a bunch of people were coming to, for like a Christian conference, and there was a big-name speaker that was coming. And uh, there were all these people that had been showing up all day. The conference was going to begin the next day. And, uh, and, and around midnight, this old man came in. And I believe the guy who was running the camp, his name I think was David. And David said to him, hey, how's it going? Can I help you? And the guy said, yeah, I've been traveling all day. I'm really tired. Um, is there a, you know, where, where, where should I sleep? Where do I go? And David said, well, I'm sorry, but we're, we're out of beds. Here's a room where there's about 50 people sleeping on the floor. We can make up a cot for you if you want. And he said, yeah, that's, that's fine. And so they, they rolled out a blanket and, and got some towels folded up to be like a pillow and said, okay, you can sleep here. And David asked him, he said, hey, have you eaten? You know, you've been traveling all day. He said, no, I'm, I'm really hungry. And so they went to the kitchen. The kitchen was locked, and they somehow jimmied it, got in there, and, and all they could find was cereal. You know, and it's after midnight, and so they're sitting there, and they're eating cereal, and they're talking and getting to know each other, and then finally they go to bed. And the next day, David wakes up, and the people kind of above him are like, you moron. You had Francis Schaefer sleeping on the floor last night. <laughs> And some of you don't know Francis Schaeffer. He was the conference speaker. He, he's written books. He's a great philosopher. And he never came in and was like, hey, Francis Schaeffer here. Uh, do you have the, I only like orange M&Ms in my green room. I mean, right? It wasn't like one of the, right? Like, just totally humble. And Tim Challies, writing about this, this is where I heard this story. He writes this. He says, that is just a tiny little glimpse into a man's life. Francis Schaeffer lived for 72 years, and this little story consumed less than half of one of the 26,000 days of his life. But it tells you a lot about the man. I think it tells you as much about the man as his public ministry does. A book may proclaim that he is brilliant, but a story like this proclaims that he is humble. A speech in front of thousands may proclaim that he's a great philosopher, but the story tells us that he is godly. There is so much we can learn about a person from those little otherwise forgotten moments. It's not only the great things a person does that makes the man, but the small things. See, here's what it is. Pride walks into a room and says, serve me. Humility walks in and says, I'm here to serve you take on the apron, you say, I'm here to serve. Pride says, serve me. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I deserve? Don't you know all the things that I've done for you? Serve me. And humility says, I'm here to serve. So this attitude of humility should pervade all of us as followers of Christ. Verse 5, likewise, in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That means follow them, submit to them. They shouldn't have to remind you they're the leaders. Follow, demonstrate humility there. And then clothe yourselves, all of you, wrap yourself in an apron, all of you of humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves in humility. Now, that often is, means taking on an apron and, and serving somebody. It also means trusting God. 
Right? Notice how Peter applies this in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. One of the ways that you demonstrate humility is by trusting God with your anxieties. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you, don't put your hand up, I don't want to embarrass you, but, but if you were honest in your heart, how many of you, your chief struggle with sin is anxiety? It's worry. It's what if. It's things are out of control. Do you realize that if you feel that way, your chief sin isn't anxiety, it's pride? It's saying, if I were in control, I'd know what to do. And so one of the ways you humble yourself, it says here, verse 7, is you cast all your anxieties on him. I, I, I picture fishermen casting their, their right? Do you ever watch The Greatest Catch? Right? And they throw those things out. It's casting your anxieties. It's saying, it's saying Lord, here, I'm, I'm, I'm burdened by all this heavy worry and anxiety. Take it. And he says he will because he cares for us. It's the attitude of humility. It's the attitude of someone that doesn't think they're great, but is eager to serve. Let me give you just one last application to this. This is something I've been thinking about. Is I think all of us as Christians, and especially leaders, but everybody, we need to find and pursue places of obscurity. Find places to serve people with obscurity, where they don't know it, they don't know you. It's not for the pats on the back. It's not for the volunteer of the year award. It's not for the thank you note you'll get. It's just to serve. It's just to help. It's just to do it. There's an example of this. I don't know. Well, most of you wouldn't know this. But if you were to go back into the corner back here, sort of stage right, there's a bunch of storage and supplies and other things there. Well, one of the things that's there is a couple cases of bottled water. And I, on Sundays, drink a couple of cases of bottled water so that I can sweat it all out. <laughs> and, uh, and, our, and the band and whoever's up, you know, it's just kind of a way for them to be refreshed and hydrated and be able to do what they need to do. And amazingly, every week, there's water there. I mean, we, we'll drink a half a case to a case of a bottle of water, and the next week, it's back. <laughs> and, and one moment, it occurred to me going... Okay, someone does this. Like, who's the water fairy that makes this happen, right? And so, so I start asking questions. I'm thinking, okay, who would this be? So I ask this person, are you the water fairy? No. Are you the water fairy? No. Are you the water fairy? And no one really knew for sure. And I finally found the water fairy. And I'm not going to embarrass the water fairy. Because part of the reason why she serves in that way is she doesn't want the attention. It's humility. And, and we drink water, water, you know. And if it just disappeared, we, we'd go, where's the water? We'd be all ungrateful. <laughs> but but it's, it's finding a place of obscurity. Do you have a place like that? We need to have the apron. That's the first picture Peter gives us. He also gives us the picture of a lion. A lion. And, and here we see in verse 8, here's what he says. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The image here is the lion. And I think we see the humility that Peter has experienced when he thinks about the lion. Because the lion here is depicting the devil. The adversary, the devil. And pride says, Satan, what's the big deal with Satan? Whatever. That sounds superstitious. That sounds silly. Can we just talk like rational facts here? Satan, what's the big deal? Humility says, be on your guard. There's a real enemy, and he does real damage. Think about this for a moment. This is back to the passage we looked at in in Luke, where where Jesus says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. And uh, Peter's like, whatever. I'm going to be fine. And now Peter's been in the grip of the lion. And he thinks a little differently now. You know, there are two ways that lions attack. One is by stealth. Being sneaky. Sneaking up. You don't quite hear them. And that's sometimes how Satan attacks. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? God's just, God's just trying to keep back from you what he knows is good. Sneaky, stealth. But then there's also the terrorizing aspect of a lion, and that's what this lion is. That's what Peter says Satan is like, because what, what, what Satan, you got to get this. This is so key. I learned this when I was in college. I went to a great Bible teaching church in college, and the pastor went through Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, spiritual warfare. And one of his first messages, I'll never forget this lesson, he said, you need to know that your struggle with Satan and your struggle with sin are practically indistinguishable. Your struggle with Satan and your struggle with sin are practically indistinguishable. Here's what he meant. Satan's only goal is to get you to sin. Right? His goal is not to like show up in some weird image on the mirror and just give you the heebie-jeebies. Right? Like, what would that do? Right? It's, it's like he wants you to sin. And even though Satan is not omniscient, get this, Satan does not know everything. Satan is not everywhere. The scripture does call him the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. He has real influence. And through the the system of of the world that he set up, through his his, uh, agents, demons, fallen angels, he, he tempts us to sin. And his intention is described here in verse 8. It's to devour us. That's his goal. And then if he can get you to sin, then he wants to terrorize you by accusing you. You know the word Satan means to accuse? So here's what he does. He tempts you, and you cave in, you let that remark fly, and you go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And then he pounces. And he starts to Satan you. I thought you were a Christian. I thought you, uh, didn't you just read that passage in James about controlling the tongue and now here you do this? You're such a hypocrite. Right? And that's what Satan does. His whole goal is to, to just get you to sin and then to get you to keep sinning and to keep you separate from relationship with Jesus. That's his goal. That's what he's doing. And so the the... The thing we're to do here, he says in verse 8, is be sober-minded. Think clearly. 
Don't think you're greater than you are. You're not. And be watchful. Be alert. Be on guard. And then resist him, verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith. Think clearly. Be on guard. Resist. I love how the Puritans applied this. You know, we have in our day what we call quiet times. If you've ever been around church at all, you've heard about quiet times. I need to have a quiet time. What that means is I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have some sort of devotional, private time with God. And I'm not on a crusade against the phrase quiet time, but it's, it's very different than what the Puritans called it. You know what they called it? The morning watch. It's very different. Quiet time says, I'm here to feel better about myself. Oh, I'm, I'm getting through my Bible in a year plan. Good for me. I'm not to Leviticus yet, but good for me. Morning watch says, I'm going into battle today. And if I don't have God's word, and if I don't have God's presence with me, I'm in trouble. There's an urgency there that's just totally different. And Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful, resist the devil. And that too demonstrates humility. The last image that he gives us that I think represents humility is the image of the finish line. The finish line. I think we see this idea in verses 10 and 11. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, remember before, with Jesus, he said, You're not going to suffer. That won't happen. And now Peter knows, No, you will suffer. Don't be surprised when you suffer. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, pride says, I need what I want now. I'm uncomfortable, got to get out of that. I'm sacrificing, I don't like that, got to get out of that. I want what I want now. In fact, we said, I need what I want now. Humility says, I can endure because a better future is ahead. And that's what Peter's saying. This whole book about standing firm, about enduring suffering, about being holy in the midst of it. He's saying, a better future's ahead. Hang in there. Persevere. Stand firm. And I love the personal way that he describes the finish line. Look at verse 10. And and remember this before we look at verse 10. Remember, Satan himself is not everywhere. Satan himself does not know everything. It's very, it's unlikely that any of us are important enough to get Satan's personal attention. Okay? Like the world and demons and all those systems, that's doing just great for us. Like we're not, of all the six billion people, I don't think any of us are so important we need Satan's attention personally. Do you get that? But now listen, look at verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I wonder if that's Peter with tears in his eyes remembering, Peter, do you love me? You may not be 
tempted by Satan himself, but you'll be restored by God himself. You'll be confirmed. You'll be strengthened. You'll be established. And that is only available because of the grace of Christ. When Jesus suffered on the cross, the veil was torn Access to God was granted so that now we can approach the throne of God with boldness. And he promises, this is what we look forward to. When when we say Advent is looking back to Jesus' original coming and looking forward to his next coming, do you know what it says at the end of the book of Revelation? I think about this every time one of my daughters falls or cries. I bend down. I wipe their tears. Give him a hug. Scripture says that in the end, God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He'll make all things new. That's the finish line. That's the hope. I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what is coming against you. What is rattling your faith? What sort of accusations are going through your head and heart? Stand firm, Peter says. Humble yourself under the mighty, caring hand of God. He will take care of you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the encouragement from it. Thank you for the promises in it. God, I pray that we would stand firm in the true grace of God. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.